Interview with Chris, part three. Volume three. <laughs> so where have we got to? Book. Um, leaving the book trust. Book trust. So we had this. We were writing a sitcom. No, that was, that was way over, back, way over, over, over. So I'd done the MA, and I'd met Bob Stein. Okay. So. Yeah. Briefly, yeah. So the MA was fascinating and involving. Um, Sue Thomas, who's, who was always way ahead in the whole kind of digital writing field, and Kate Pullinger, the novelist, who'd sort of been lured into it, and looking at things like Twitter, which I'd never heard of, when, I mean, the world hadn't heard of when we yep. started, and uh, transmedia ways of telling stories. And then by the end of it, I'd met a, a, this guy called Bob Stein, who wanted to give a lecture, and... Uh, he came from New York and was a real character. And he ran a thing called the Institute for the Future of the Book from his kitchen. And I met him out. I met up with him. I think I missed the lecture. That's right. I met up with him outside in the Starbucks outside Euston Station. Mm. And I think almost then he suggested that I was thinking of setting up a sort of digital, you know, a little arts thing was I? I think I was and he's basically he, he offered to make me co-director of the Institute for the Future of the Book because he wanted to set up a sort of British thing, I think he was fed up in New York and so we had uh, he had this grant the MacArthur grant which had helped him set up, I went out to stay with him, in, no with my uncle in New York and then went to his place in Williamsburg and we started sort of doing projects around digital publishing. One called Songs of Imagination and Digitization, which was thinking about, for this was my one really, my main one was about how William Blake would have kind of pounced on blogging and multimedia. Um, and we made a, a sort of digital book of the stuff like that. And Bob's big one at the time was uh, getting Doris Lessing to let us put the Golden Notebook online really? and then have a sort of social reading world around it so mm. his thing was social reading that this amazing idea that you could read a book and all the readers could comment in the margins and have a conversation um, so those were two of the projects that we did together and then I spent a lot of time introducing him to figures from publishing in Britain and I was just writing about it recently. He'd always loved to kind of... He was very unimpressed by anybody important, you know. <laughs> and uh, But loved kind of new, bright young things. And um, and also just really liked meeting family. You know, that was the other thing that he really liked. So we got a bit of money. I left Book Trust, set up If Book UK, which was me in my kitchen, and a bit of money for projects. And... Um, did that for a while, exploring digital possibilities for literature. And then gradually, oh, we did a thing called the the, the hot book, which about about a a project in schools where the somebody from the future would get in touch with the school and send them bits of digital literature that they didn't yes. know quite what they were. And what was the name of the lead character who uh, was And you journeying? were involved in yeah. Found, uh, yeah, with Toby Jones, which was about a 12-year-old 
boy who had no memories and the children at this school in Birmingham were encouraged to help him create That's right. memories. It was a lovely project. It was a great project and you played the assistant, didn't you? you were you were you Did I do some Emily Dickinson? I'd read some Oh we um, I read some classical That's literature. Right. Yeah, we had because we made these bits of digital literature, which included people like Corrie Doctorow and, um, 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 you know, the author of The Power. Older, uh, she's what's her name disappeared. Naomi Alderman wrote something for us, and then we had, you know, classic works which we did digital things with. And then there was this great moment when me and Toby had to go to the school to break it to them that this guy they'd invented didn't really exist and we weren't who they thought we were. And how did that go down? It was brilliant because the self-righteousness is such a powerful thing. It's so empowering, you know, they would say, but, you know, we could have been studying for our GCSEs. But they loved it. Yeah. And I think the, the really lucky thing was that by then Toby... Jones wasn't quite so famous. He was Toby Jones. But he had been the voice of Dobby in um, <laughs> Harry Potter. So he was therefore a big star for them. Right. And that, that all was forgiven. But that was a great project. Um, yeah, so then I did that. And I mean, I suppose working freelance, more like freelance, doing more of my own writing. Um, it was very tough time for fundraising. Suddenly there was no extra money around, mm-hmm. you know, so once I'd used up this Arts Council grant, it was harder to... to no, nothing sort of took off. You know, you do a... We did a great unlibrary in the light local library, creating yeah. a different sort of library space. A few years before, somebody would have said, oh, you know, angle this towards teenagers and we could get funding from here. Or, you yeah, know. absolutely. But suddenly nothing like that happened. It was just you know, do it or not. And um, I suppose then my mum got ill. My mum died in 2012. And so that sort of in between, you know, caring for her sort of thing and doing freelance stuff, but for less money and stuff and doing more of my own thing. And then the other really sort of influential thing was I got, through Bob, got involved in these associations, which was Tino Sigal, the artist, uh, did a thing in the turbine hall at the Tate. Tate Modern. Tate Modern. During the Olympic year, where whenever you went in, there was at least 50 people milling about, playing strange games that you couldn't quite work out what was going on, running around chanting um yeah moving so we're in 2012 in 2012 yeah so i was part of this great company which would roam about you do things for instance like walking up and down the space gradually moving faster and faster until you're running and then you break up into little units because there's an incline isn't there in the turbine hall yeah the long incline and a wonderful cast of lots of dancers but also people who've been picked for having strange stories because the other big thing was that whenever you wanted to you could break off from the group and approach a member of the public and tell them a story talk to them with absolutely no rules about where that went you know you you, it was your story you could converse with them for hours if you wanted to did they 
Did they elect to have a story told to them? Uh, well, if they weren't interested, you'd go away. Oh, uh, right. You'd, yeah. No, you didn't. There was no formal. So you'd, it's sort of catching people's eyes. So you could just wander up somebody and say, you know, on the way here today, I was thinking da 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 or when I was six, da 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 And some, I remember once telling a story to somebody, this is all very interesting, but actually I'm here to see the arts. <laughs> the only rule we had was that if anybody said, so what is this? Are you part of some artwork? At that point, we detached ourselves and mm. joined the fold again because we were. So we, you know, artworks don't explain themselves to people. They quite they, they do it. But that was such an amazing bit of sort of open, open source storytelling, completely mm. analog, but completely informed by the idea of hive minds and sort of digital possibilities. I felt fascinating. And this amazing tribe, about 300 people, who really didn't get to know each other until afterwards, you know, because, of course, you were alongside people. You never heard their stories. You only told your own. Mm. Um, yes, yeah, so, uh, thanks to things like Facebook, that group. Mm. You know, so you've kept in touch. Still in touch. So a lot yeah. of people have made connections since. Great. Um, and that got me interested in thinking differently about writing and things yeah so where should we go from there when did you start neoleology so neoleology the term came up at a party it was a friend of my daughter's and we were talking about so, I mean for me it was something to do with that moment of life where the th things that you hadn't done but nearly did you know you could have as strong memories of those as as things which at the time seemed a really big deal but you then forgot about completely um and i've just used the word as a sort of one-off joke but it just sort of hummed you know and then i began writing about it and then again this sort of the next generation of the ma that I'd done was Bath Spa. Kate Pullinger set up a, a course there in digital writing as part of the creative writing PhD offerings. And they offered some free studentships and I applied for one and got that. So it was a fee waiver to do a PhD. At Bath? At Bath Spa. Bath Spa University. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I... Uh, took the theme of neoleology, which is the study of how the things you nearly do influence who you really are. That was my definition. Right. And uh, it led me to write a novel, but also write this sort of research paper around it for the PhD about how, we compo how to compose, really, in this very sort of transmedia multimedia way what's the title way. of the novel the novel's called what didn't quite and um and the phd was called writing neology right and you you started doing a series of workshops of of there were performances and there were workshops yeah i do we did. A, I was in a shop, an empty shop in Bristol, inviting people to come in and tell me their nearly stories. And 
lots of people walk past, but lots of people just make an absolute beeline. They know immediately, oh yeah, and they come straight in and they tell you very definitely a story about something they nearly did. Um, the most extreme version was a man who was telling me how he nearly jumped off a car park <laughs> in uh, you know, at a low point in his life before he discovered God. Um, but what he was really, he was trying to describe exactly where this car park was. <laughs> that was the thing. <laughs> um, yeah, but it, it seemed a pretty powerful way mm. of talking about quite difficult things sometimes. I mean, very tragic. You know, people would tell you without really realising they'd be talking about very dark things to do with their lives. But equally... A lot of them were very optimistic. Mostly people told you about something they'd nearly done which would have stopped them doing something much better. Um, okay. But the other bit of it, I suppose, where it connects up... Yeah, I mean, this is sort of trying to put things together. I mean, I've... So I was writing as a kid. I was thought I was going to be a writer. And I did the reviewing and there was the Betty Spittle. And I was the, in Sheffield, I had a poetry performance team called the commas which i don't think i mentioned writing for the friday show but then there was my professional work was this community arts practice which often involved me sort of absolutely not being the writer you know i was the creative administrator and somehow in the idea of nearly writing it's like putting all those things together and saying mm. this is a creative practice mm. and um yeah, you know, I think that's in that's in the way what it was a sort of affirmation of was that these doing these different things, they were both creative and they both fitted together. So mm. that the activities around it, running a workshop with the theatre director, uh, Lily McLeish, who was the daughter of an old friend, uh, you know, that was as much part of the the, the Neoliology project as as the novel. Mm. Um, so that was really good fun. Yeah, and it worked really well, the novel. I think so. I mean, yeah. it, was, it, it was sort of the opposite. I mean, I knew, I remember somebody saying, so you're going to write a sort of transmedia, you know, multimedia thing for the iPad, and think, no, absolutely not. What I'm going to do is explore every avenue to decide what I want to do and then make whatever seems appropriate. And in fact, what it sort of showed, I wrote songs written by a character in the novel who'd nearly been a you know felt he'd nearly been a pop star although he'd never done much about it at the time that got me into writing songs which i've been doing ever since oh right um and the fiction and i could have put them together but in a way you realize that the fiction has to work as text and the songs have to work as songs and some people will like one not the other so you don't want to force them to have to look at the mixture um, so I felt, you know, I came away feeling probably much less sort of fascinated by what you could do digitally, but very much thinking in the modern, one of the great things about digital culture is you can put together all sorts of different forms as you, as you want to. And the main thing is to know what you really want, actually. Indeed. And you also have a puppet who is a sort of alter ego. In, actually, that's going back to the, for the MA. I wrote a thing called In Search of Lost Tim. Oh, right. Yeah, I've forgotten about him as well. Bloody hell. I'd forgotten about him as well. Um, yes. Lost, Say more about Lost yeah, Tim. Yeah, 
So last term was a story about a boy in the 60s um, who has, he creates a sort of balsa wood, you know, box with a t like the sort of a time machine and <laughs> um, which he talks to the future in the 21st century. Lord Tim, who is a kind of spy and undercover, undercover superhero, basically. And um, yeah, it's their kind of adventures. And there's also a, a woman who really exists in the 21st century, like now, who sort of gets caught up in it. And, um, so it was really playing around with how 12 year old me in the 60s thought about the future. It was a time when I think I was at my most, again, creative in the sort of cutting and sticking and writing and imagining, putting lots of things together, uh, how digital culture could do that. So I made a thing on lots of blog pages with cartoons and this puppet playing Tim. And um, was he an alter ego? He was, yeah, I mean, Tim is me. I mean, it's yeah. semi-autobiographical. Yeah. But my kids came back from wherever they were, uni or abroad, to find this puppet sitting on the sofa <laughs> that I was talking to. <laughs> uh, yeah, and that involved writing songs as well for him. And do you play the ukulele and the drums? I, I thought, yeah, I played the drums for quite a long time. And Not you were well. in a band? I was in a band in, yeah, in Hampstead, Edge of August, me and two guitarists in Sheffield. I was in the Misterons, which was a fantastic, huge band which only played benefits. Did very long versions of sort of things like Stand Down Margaret or, um, you know, um, Dancing in the Street, things like that. Uh, it was great. It had some really brilliant musicians in and lots of people like me who just sort of tapped a cowbell. And, a guy, what was his name? There was a guy who would just appear on, he never came to any rehearsals, but he'd leap up. Chico, he'd appear on stage as a sort of rapper. His name was Chico. Yeah, and he was like the lead, you know, everybody thought of it that he, it was his band, but, you know, he just only ever appeared at concerts. <laughs> it was great. It was really good fun. And then lately, I've now got two or three friends in what we call the If So Band, um, doing my songs, which is... But you also had a, ba a band called The Better Tones. And the, yeah, before that, The Better Tones. Oh, I remember. Staff from the Betterton Street offices of the Poetry Society. Great name. And we did Latin stuff. We did sort of Buena Vista type stuff. Uh, yeah, that, that was great fun as well. Really lovely, lovely. Um, yeah, so that's another thread running through. Mm. Yeah, God, what amazing stuff. <laughs> 